If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, you are just so good to us in so many ways. And Father, we know and we are very much aware of the fact that we, we just don't deserve any of your kindness. We sometimes, Father, think that we're pretty good and we try to we try to do right, we try to live right. But Father, we know deep down inside that. We don't do good as often as we should. We're also very much aware, Father, that there are times that our attitudes towards others aren't what they should be, even though others may not see them. We hide our sin from you. But, Father, we know that our sin is never really hidden. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us. We pray, Lord, that whatever is in our life, whatever is in our mind that would cause us to be hindered in our understanding of your word, that would interfere with our growing and our understanding of scripture, we pray that you would remove it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be able to focus on your word, that, Lord, that we would be able to absorb its truths. And the Father would be the desire of our heart to want to live it out in every way. And so, as always, Father, we ask that you bless our time in your word that these things would take place. And so we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Again, keep in mind the context of all that we're going to be looking at here today. Again, there's been division that's been brought about in the church uh, because people have been identifying themselves with particular teachers. Uh, We know that it has been taught to us by Paul that we are all workers. We're all being used by God to build his church. And Paul is one of the apostles who has helped to lay the foundation. So we're warned to be careful as to how we build on it. That our work, each one's work, is going to be evaluated and be judged. That gathered believers, as we saw last week, are the dwelling place of God. That we are the dwelling place of God as individuals, but the emphasis here that we saw is when the believers are gathered. The church is what he's talking about. And then so along with that then, there's the warning not to corrupt God's people, not to corrupt the church. And because of the context here, what he is implying is that this identifying with particular teachers by trying to... Uh, align yourself, whether you're trying to show your importance or whether you're trying to, you know, whatever you're trying to gain from this, this idea of identifying with these kinds of individuals and this, this division that's taking place is corrupting the church. It's very harmful. And so that's the warning. 
So verse 18 again, he says, let no one deceive himself. Normally when you see a phrase like that, that's because this happens. In other words, he says, let no one deceive himself. He's letting us know there's a really good chance this is going to happen. This is happening there. It's already happening in the church at Corinth. The warning to you and I is to make sure that this doesn't happen because it can. Never allow yourself to think that somehow you are above or beyond the reach of certain kinds of temptations. And especially when the Bible points them out with this kind of wording. So let no one deceive himself. And and again, that's the greatest form of deceit. We might be deceived by other people. And it's going to happen in your life. It's going to happen more than once. When you are deceiving yourself, you're just in a heap of trouble. I won't tell you the whole story. I'll give it to you real quick. But there was a, when I was a chaplain in the jail in Hawaii, there was a, a man, uh, I believe he was from Jamaica. Uh, he, was, he was kind of noticeable, not only because of his accent there, even though in Hawaii that was, uh, his accent was unusual. He was about four foot seven, four foot eight. Um, and, but what really made him stand out was that when he was arrested, he gave his name as being Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and um, it really wasn't his name. It took them a long time to discover his name. Uh, but what, what made him also interesting was that uh, he, no matter what questions you asked him about that, trying to trip him up, uh, you know, he was, wherever Abraham Lincoln was born, that's where he was born. He was president of the United States. Uh, I mean, it was just, you just go on and on. And the reason why he's still alive was because he moved to Florida and found the Fountain of Youth. And so, you know, how that got him to Hawaii, who knows? Uh, but this, and, the, and so we, we had a, a, one of the officers, or one of the guards in the dorm that he was in, um, a man from Canada, whenever he would um, uh, start his shift, he had written in a Sharpie on his hand, no matter what he says, he's not Abraham Lincoln. And the reason why he put that down is because the guy was convincing. And the reason why he was so convincing is because he, was, he had convinced himself. It was as if he believed he was Abraham Lincoln. So if you deceive me, maybe I'm kind of stupid. But if you deceive yourself... Uh, we might call that crazy. He was crazy. And of course, the worst kind of, the worst kind of self-deception, as always, is the individual who's convinced themselves they are a Christian when they're not. And we need to always be aware of, of that great danger that an individual faces. Here, he's dealing with this another issue. And so he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So the danger that's found here in the church in Corinth is that some, and maybe it's many, but they may deceive themselves with respect in the entire subject of wisdom. Whether it's of, 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 whether they are a teacher or it's the wisdom of teachers, whether it's the kind of work they do, the idea here is that they are deceiving themselves with something very specific, and Paul wants them to stop doing it. Because the, the command here is to stop continuing to deceive yourself, because this is what you're doing, this is how you're living. And then he says, if anyone among you seems to be wise. So Paul is describing that the individual who's self-deceived is the one who thinks that he's wise. He thinks he's, he's got the knowledge, he's got his act together um, in, in this present day circumstances that he finds himself living in he flatters himself believing that what he knows is true wisdom what he possesses is true wisdom uh, when in reality all that he possesses is what he's gotten from the world so this is the individual who is he's not ignorant of the bible 
You know, he's learning what the Bible says, but he's really kind of filled with a sense of self-importance. Now, that doesn't always mean that he acts arrogantly where you can see his arrogance. It may be just a a form of self-confidence. It may be that it's simply this, that he no longer really hears what the Word of God is saying because he already has it. He already already understands that part. I remember once when um, uh, I did go to Bible college for a little while, and uh, I was in a class that was being taught by a man who was a retired missionary uh, in India. He was in Calcutta for about 40 years. And he was an older gentleman. He was in his 80s. Uh, his name was Dr. Cook. And, but he was still very, very sharp. And he was uh, teaching us a class on the Old Testament. And I was sitting at the back of the class, and there was a, uh, another guy that was back there that I'm not sure why he was there in school because he didn't really seem to be interested in anything that was going on. But nonetheless, he was there. And so as Dr. Cook was teaching... Um, the guy that was sitting by me, he kind of mumbled something. And, and I didn't catch all of it, but I, could, I, could, I heard part of it. And, and part of it was, you've already said that, you stupid old man. Now, I could hardly hear him. Dr. Cook is in the front of the class. And he stops the class. He says, excuse me, young man, would you mind repeating that? And, of course, everybody turns. No one else heard what he said. This guy is just uh, nothing. Dr. Cook said, no, I want you to say it. So he kind of ham and hauled around. And uh, so Dr. Cook said again, I'm serious. I want you to say it. And so he said what he said and ended by saying, you know, basically, you've already said that, you stupid old man. Of course, everybody's like, oh, they, kept, they couldn't believe he said it. They couldn't believe he repeated it. This whole thing is just really messed up. And so Dr. Cook is very calm, and he says, I have a question for you, son. Do you have it yet? Because if you don't, I'll say it again tomorrow. <laughs> and so the key is, is that this young man, he's in a position, whatever he's thinking, he's thinking he doesn't need any of this stuff. He already has it. And so this individual here that Paul is talking about, these individuals have, have deceived themselves into thinking that they have the knowledge that they need to get through life. They have what it takes to be able to, to handle life successfully and to move forward. And so the advice that Paul is giving to this individual is, first of all, stop continually deceiving yourselves. If you think you have this wisdom, let me tell you, let me give you a bit of advice. What you should do is just, you need to become a fool. Become a fool so you can be wise. In other words, discard this wisdom. Allow yourself to be called a fool by the world. Let yourself appear as a fool that you may become wise in the true sense of the word through the wisdom of Jesus Christ. The way to escape the dangers of this worldly-based wisdom is not by adding some of the wisdom of Christ to it. And that is what has gotten the church and individuals in trouble through the centuries is they get excited about whether it's something in science or something in psychology or whatever it happens to be, and, and the new thing is kind of thrown out there as being true, and the individual believer, for whatever the reason, either thinks that this thing somehow either contradicts the Bible or it really helps to add to the Bible. Uh, they're not even sure that what's being promoted is really being true, but somehow they believe it, and so they, they kind of accept it, they adopt it, and, and then they sprinkle in some Bible verses, and voila. You have this new thing, that new fad, or whatever it is that we can kind of clamor on to. And sometimes it's harmless, but sometimes it's very, very harmful to individuals in the church. There's a corrupting influence that's there. 
Uh, you've heard me tell you before, but you know, my views on psychology, I'm not against psychology, I'm against humanistic psychology. I believe they have a lot of things wrong. I do need, we, continue, we need to continually compare all those things to what the Bible says. But what began to happen in the 70s is there was this massive movement uh, that was taking place within the church as a whole in America. And there were a lot of, a lot of information was coming out in psychology. It was kind of a pop psychology movement where information was being made available in books and lectures and talks that was kind of being disseminated. And everybody was, everybody was kind, of, kind of becoming a self-styled psychologist. Uh, and they were just kind of drinking all this stuff in. And what the church did as a whole was the church kind of just adopted it, didn't really change much of it, sprinkled in a few Bible verses and said, wow, how, how we're going to really be able to help people now. And the reason why they came about is there was this attitude, which still persists in some areas, and the attitude or the idea is that the Bible is good as far as it goes, that there's a limit to what it says. Yet, all the while, if you just go back to what it says in Second Peter, God clearly makes a statement that every single thing you need for life and godliness has been given to us in the knowledge of his son Christ. That's not, that doesn't mean that all the knowledge has kind of been shrunk down to a, this little capsule, and, and when you swallow this, you've got it. What he's letting us know is how broad and deep and huge the knowledge of God is. And so here what's taking place is, is these are individuals who are puffed up, thinking that they have arrived, thinking they've grabbed onto something, and they've kind of Christianized whatever the knowledge is of the world, identifying with some new movement, because now they're the expert. And as a result, uh, they become a fool. And so we, what we need to make sure that we do is that we don't just add the supposed wisdom of Christ to the supposed wisdom of the world to create some new wisdom. And that continues to take place. What we need to do is utterly cast aside the so-called wisdom of the world and no longer hold on to it. There's to be a complete repudiation of any and all hypotheses, theories, speculations, scientific, philosophic, or popular, which come against and seek priority over Christ. And that's what happens. As Christians, we've never been against science. It's because of Christianity that science has flourished. But there are those who believe that science trumps everything. And so then if their mind, uh, science then somehow says something uh, that either uh, dismisses what what Christianity is or what the Bible says or who Christ is, that that you follow science. And so there are individuals who have committed themselves to science, and, and that now becomes the Savior. And that there becomes what we turn to. That's where we go when we need advice, when we need help. If we're going to bring about world peace, if we're going to bring about psychological wholeness, we turn to science. And so it, it becomes a thing where it's exalting itself against the name of Christ. We're trying to make science do what science was never intended to do. And so we kind of have a religious devotion to it. And as a result, it begins to turn people away from God. So Christians aren't, we're not being anti-scientific. We're not being anti-science when, we come, when it comes to this. But we are clearly stating that any, any wisdom of the world that promotes itself or is promoted as being something that is exalted above God or above Christ in any way, shape, or form, it is to be repudiated in every way. Again, verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And then he explains something about God, what God has done. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul cites two Old Testament passages as proof texts to show that worldly wisdom is folly. Now again, remember that worldly wisdom 
we're talking about really the application of information, right? So an example would be uh, those individuals who are really heavily promoting evolution to the point uh, that they that they are they believe that it's somehow disproven Christianity, that kind of thing. There's several well-known scientists that are out there kind of pushing this idea. And so what they've done is they have, they've taken um, uh, uh, evolution and, and basically what, what, the, what they are adhering to is a theory of the beginning or origins of life as we know it that has eliminated God. There's no need for God. God is in the process. And so that's what they're promoting. That's what they're, they're pushing. And so that's why it's called foolishness. It's foolish when you go there. It, it is not the logical position, but they promote it as being that. And so that's the foolishness of the world, what we're talking about here, is that kind of thing. So again, the Old Testament passage, passages that he's, that he's quoting here, he's showing that worldly wisdom is truly foolishness. And God's foolishness, or God's folly, which is how the world views it, is true wisdom. So the first phrase comes from the book of Job. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now this phrase, or these are the words, that's from Job chapter 5. These are the words of um, Eliphaz, uh, one of Job's friends. Paul is quoting a man who basically later is rebuked by God for being wrong. In Job 42, it says, And it came after the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the, the Timnite, Timonite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now Eliphaz, like his friends, he wasn't wrong in what he said about God. And that sometimes can throw people off. But he was wrong in how he applied the truth to Job. In other words, Eliphaz was accusing Job of being crafty. He thus explained that Job's suffering was a divine judgment for his sin. And that wasn't the case. Eliphaz thought himself wise. In his wisdom, he appointed himself as Job's counselor. Eliphaz was dealing with Job as though he, Job, was foolish and needed to wise up. But the truth was that Eliphaz became the illustration of the very truth that he misapplied to Job. Eliphaz was tripped up by his own wisdom. God does that. God will trip up the wicked by employing their own cunning to be the means of their downfall. Let me read to you from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 16 through 19 and then 29 through 32. This is what it says. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satisfied with their own devices. For, their, for the waywardness of the naive shall kill them and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. So oftentimes God allows the wise to carry out their schemes but he employs their cunning schemes to bring about their downfall. If you've been in uh, Chris Leverett's class as, we go through the, as we've gone through the book of Esther, we saw that where um, Haman is very much against uh, Mordecai. He wants Mordecai dead. And so he spires and conspires and schemes and builds these huge gallows because he wants to make a, a show of this because he's going to take care of business with Mordecai. And we know that in the end, his whole scheme is completely flipped on him. And as a result of that, not only does he find himself begging for his life, in the end, he himself is swinging from the gallows uh, that, um, that he had built for Mordecai. The day before that, 
uh, because his hatred for Mordecai is so great, what we often laugh at, which is actually pretty funny, is the king calls him in and says, I, there's someone that has done something great for me in the past. I've not thanked them. What do you think I should do for that individual? Mordecai, because he's filled with his own arrogance, is convinced he's talking about him. He says, put on the best robes and put him on the best horse and parade him through the city. And of course, the king is like, what a great idea. Quickly, make this happen because Mordecai is the guy on the horse. And of course, so he leads him the day before. And of course, his anger even grows even more. And so then the next day, he's swinging from the gallows. That he, so that, that, that entire story, what we see is how God takes an individual in their own craftiness and causes that to become the very trap that causes them to get caught in what they're doing. Of course, the supreme illustration of that is of Christ. Let me begin to read to you from Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, and he said to this, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and just and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in your ignorance, as did your fathers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Messiah should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So the idea here is that we know, as you, as you study the life of Christ, especially the, the trials and the death and suffering of Christ, that God and his sovereign providence has brought it about that Jesus Christ, who was put to death by the Romans and the Jews, is his Messiah. Satan, who was so anxious to do everything that he could possibly do toward the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, discovers that he and the Gentiles and the Jews, in successfully carrying out their purpose in putting him to death, Satan himself then brought about his own ultimate downfall. And the Jews and the Gentiles who put him to death also brought it to pass that those believers in him have have the fruition of eternal life. In other words, the very persons who fight against the will of God are the tools of the Lord in bringing all this to pass, which was his will. So God catches the wise in their own craftiness. They sought with all of their wisdom and all of their might to destroy the Son of God. But God caught them in their own craftiness. Paul also cites here another text. He says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now, the word that's used here by, uh, by Paul, generally speaking, is that God knows the thoughts, and these thoughts are the reasonings of men that are contrary to the word of God. Let me read to you from the book of Luke, chapter 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. And verse 8 says, but he knew their thoughts. So he knew their, their reasonings that were contrary to God. He knew them. And so he said to the man who had, who had the withered hand. So what we have here in verse 8 sets up everything else that's going to be said. Christ is doing and saying everything he's doing in response to what they're reasoning in their mind. 
He is going to, he's going to do this to confound them. No one else knows why he's saying the things he's saying the way he's saying it, but these individuals do. And so Jesus then speaks to the man with the withered hand. He says, arise and stand here. And so he arose. So Jesus is being dramatic on purpose. He knows what these individuals are thinking about what he's doing with this man. And he says, you need to get up. So he's got their undivided attention. And so then Jesus turns to the Pharisees that are there. He says, I want to ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? Now, these Pharisees have had various arguments and debates over this kind of question for decades. This was an ongoing issue that they had, that they were you know, trying to figure out, so to speak. And so, and so they, they had kind of come up with some laws and some rules and trying to figure out how they could continue to keep the law and yet, you know, be merciful. How, you know, they need to, to save a life. You don't just let someone, you, you don't say, well, you know, you're, you're drowning. I would save you, but it's a Sabbath day, so sorry. Uh, I told you before that in the Mishnah, which is a compilation of the traditions of the Jews, uh, and, and many of that, many of the, of, of the laws that are in the Mishnah that you can buy today were around when Jesus was around. Not all of them, but many of them. But they had even figured out a way um, to uh, try to uh, deal with, with what happens if your house is on fire on the Sabbath day. Because if your house catches on fire on the Sabbath day, you can't put it out. Because that's work. And you can't ask your neighbor to put it out. And let's just say that your neighbor is a Gentile. So he can work on the Sabbath. You can't ask him. But if he volunteers, you don't have to stop him. So he starts to put out the fire for you, you can be grateful. Unless he's under a certain age, then you have to stop him. Uh, so they had all these things they had, you know, they were trying to figure out. And so Jesus has this man with a withered hand. And so he asked him, is it lawful? Is it lawful for this to be done? And when he looked around at them, of course, of course you know, they don't say anything. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now you notice that when Jesus did this, he didn't touch him. He didn't, in this case, he didn't make any mud. He didn't do anything. He just said, stretch your hand out. So Jesus isn't doing anything as far as physical. The man stretches out his hand, it's healed. And all the Pharisees immediately drop to their knees and praise the Lord. No, they don't. It says in verse 11, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the Lord knows their thoughts. He turns that against them. And so in verse 21 and 23, back in 1 Corinthians, he says, therefore, because of all the things he's been saying, therefore, let no one boast in men. In order for there to be unity in the church and for division to be eliminated, there must be a proper view of others. And so, verse 21, where it begins with therefore, remember that when the word therefore is there, uh, it points backwards. And he's basically saying he wants to show them that what he's just said has a bearing on what he's now saying. Since human wisdom is fruitless, let no man glory in men. When it comes to divisions in churches, division in, in churches occurs in two areas, opinions and people. People divide over issues, they divide over people. And so what happens here is he then says, let no one boast in men, and then he explains why. For all things are yours, 
Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God. What is the point of that? What is he trying to communicate? Because I believe that we can look at that and we can understand the words and the phrases and the sentences. But what is he really trying to communicate? I mean, what do I take home from this? All is yours. What does that mean? Because that's important. Remember, when you and I read the scripture, it's not just enough to be able to, to say that, to be able to quote it. I need to know what it means. I need, I need to understand how this applies to me. How does this affect my life? How does this affect my thinking? How does this affect my behavior? So what is he talking about here? Is this some kind of pie in the sky? And oh, think all these positive thoughts because everything belongs to you. I looked long and hard through a lot of commentaries trying to find help and be able to explain what is going on here because I think it's important. It's very important. God has preserved this for a reason. So again, all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, things present, things to come, all are yours. When a sense of insecurity in your abilities, in your job, in your ministry, in your theology, tempts you to attach yourself to someone stronger, someone more competent, more esteemed, more gifted, more secure, don't do it. You don't need to do it. Because all things are yours. When a sense of of out-of-the-way insignificance in a world of social media and publishing, growing churches, conferences, those who are invited to speak, those who are invited to come up on the platform that tempts you to attach yourself to someone or some group that's more prominent, more shrewd, maybe more published, more successful, more admired, don't do it. You don't need to do it because all things are yours. When the craving for the kudos that come from being in the know about the latest prominent music group or athletic team or movie or pastor, or theologian, or book, or mobile app, or political guru tempts you to attach yourself to them. Don't do it. You don't need to do it, because all things are yours. When the craving for secondhand significance, and worth, and power, and authority tempt you to grasp for it vicariously by boasting in men, don't do it. You don't need to do it, because all things are yours. You and I are not victims of this world. We own it. It is not your master. It is not your servant. I mean, it is your servant. From the most beneficial beauties to the most malignant cancers, it is yours. Everything in it, everything that happens on it, is working together for your greatest good. Life is yours. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every chemical transaction in your body, every day you face, every night you sleep, Every movement you make, every word, every deed, every relationship, every accomplishment, every plan, failed or successful, every emotion that rises, every thought that passes, every book you read, every line you tweet, every text you send, every conversation, every gift given, and every sin committed. All of it, all your life is yours. You don't belong to it, it belongs to you. You are not attached to life. Life is attached to you. 
Life follows you. Death is yours. O death, where is your your sting? Well, it is on Golgotha's empty cross. Death, where is your victory? It is in the empty grave outside of Jerusalem. Then what are you to me, death? Death is our servant. Death serves us while we live to make us wise and serious and fruitful. Death will serve us when we die because it brings us home to Jesus and to all of eternity. Death will serve from the lake of fire, reminding you that you have been spared. We do not belong to death. Death belongs to us. Death is our servant. Death is ours. The present is ours. All things are yours now. All things do not begin to serve you at some future time. They are serving you now. Every moment of your life is yours. Every moment is your servant. Every moment is a stroke of the divine brush of the canvas of the final masterpiece that is called you. Every moment, the sad moments, the happy moments, the fearful moments, the bold moments, the lonely moments, the grieving moments, the ecstatic moments, the sleeping moments, all the moments, the present is yours. You are not a slave of time or chance or any sequence of events. You own them. They are yours. They serve you. They are God's emissaries to bring you to glory and to make you glorious. You do not belong to the future. The future belongs to you. Everything that will come to pass from this moment on will work to your advantage. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. You will be king and priest. You will judge angels. You will have bodies like Jesus' glorious body. You will be over two cities, over five cities, or over ten. You will be a pillar in the temple of God. God will be your God and will walk with you, his friends, his child. You will sit with Jesus on his throne. You will never sin again. You will know and you grow in immeasurable pleasures forever. And you will be the fullness of him who fills all in all because the future is yours. How can this be? Because you are Christ and Christ is God's. You are Christ. You belong to him the way a hand belongs to a body, the way a bride belongs to a husband, the way a subject belongs to a king, the way a brother belongs to a brother in one family. How do you know if you are in Christ? Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you have the spirit, you are his. So I ask you, as it says in Galatians, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Yes, we all know the answer. By hearing with faith. God came to you and God came to me in his word. The gospel that you heard, the gospel that I heard. And by that word created life in you and life in me and we believed. And in believing what we heard, the spirit was received. And this spirit is not the spirit of slavery but of sonship. He bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And if you are a child and an heir. And an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. And so what we need to ask ourselves is what Paul asked these people here, is it true of you? Are you Christ? Do you belong to Christ? This is not a way to promote the individual self, that you don't need anybody and to be your own man and to be your own person. You might get that from here, but what this is telling us here is this. Yes, you are to be your own person in Christ. Yes, you have all these things in Christ. You possess all these things in Christ. All that is in the world serves us because of Christ. So we have nothing to fear. 
We don't need to be enslaved to anyone or to anything. We don't need to attach ourselves to any movement or to any individual to find satisfaction or greatness or importance. Because we're children of the King. You are free to be who you are because you know who you belong to. Nothing has to rule us save Christ himself. How marvelous is that? When you think about that and think about the sin they're committing by trying to find importance by attaching themselves to a teacher, that just looks lame. It's like hoarding up a flowery weed and saying how beautiful it is while you have a bouquet of flowers over here. And that's what we have in Christ. Some of you don't have all those things I talked about. You might nod your head in agreement and think it sounds wonderful. But you've never experienced the goodness of Christ in your life on a daily basis. You're not really relishing in the forgiveness of your sins. There is not an anxiousness about death. There's a fear of death. There's not an anxiousness about old age. There's a fear of old age. There's not an anxiousness of your abilities diminishing. There's a fear of that happening. It's because you don't know Christ. And I would encourage you this morning to come before God and to ask God to help you to search your heart and to reveal to you the truth if you belong to him. And if you do not belong to Christ, then I encourage you to believe in Christ today, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these things that we mentioned become yours. You don't have to earn them. You don't have to come to church for so many Sundays in a row. You don't have to read your Bible all the way through twice. You don't have to do any of those things. They are given to you because of Christ. Because you belong to Christ. Everything that Christ possesses, you within that moment possess. Because he is your brother. He is your savior. He is your friend. And for those of us who are believers, it is important That we stop living lives where we are known as the individual who complains or we're known as the individual who's just barely holding on in life. We need to rejoice in what we have with Christ and ask the Lord to embolden us so that we then become known as individuals who maybe despite our difficulties, our life and our joy and our smile points to and is because of Christ. That's how we should be known. And again, that is not possible by just only coming to church every week or reading your Bible through twice. It is by that daily relationship cultivating with Christ himself. Give yourself wholeheartedly to him. Repudiate all of the so-called knowledge of the world because that is foolishness. Make yourself a fool of Christ. There is freedom in that and great joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for all that you have given us in Christ. And Father, even though we have received a great deal and experienced a great deal already in our lives, we know, Lord, that it doesn't even hold a candle to what is to come. We thank you, Father, for the reality of the world to come, the reality of riches to come, the reality, Father, of joys to come, the realities, Father, of pleasures to come. That, Lord, that we really will be with you one day and we will be with those that we love so dearly that are fellow believers. 
And that, Father, it will be so fantastic and so great that we can't even come close to even imagining how wonderful it's going to be. Yet, Lord, our, our hearts are filled with the hope that we have in Christ. And, Father, we do pray for those who don't have that hope. In fact, Lord, we pray for them that if they don't have that hope, that, Lord, your spirit would put a spotlight on the darkness of their heart and help them, Father, to feel an overwhelming sense of dissatisfaction and hopelessness. That, Lord, they've only been fooling themselves. That, Father, they may understand their own sinfulness and throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. And give to them, Father, that assurance that for each one who throws himself at the mercy of Christ, will be saved. Because it pleases you to be merciful. It pleases you, Father, to save. We know, Lord, we can never thank you enough. We pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude because, Father, we are sinful. Too often our response to your word is there's not enough gratitude in our life. So we pray that you would ignore our selfishness and ignore, Lord, our stubbornness. Ignore, Father, how limited we are and fill us. That, Father, we may even now begin to experience a small taste of heaven and live, Father, in the present for you. We do thank you so much. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.